always good to worship together, and I'm thrilled that you're here. Uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, I'm really glad that you're here, and I hope tonight is an encouraging night for you. I know sometimes when you're out shopping and you buy something, there's that thing the next day they call buyer's remorse. Yeah, you you, you felt that. You've been there before <laughs> when you're like, why did I? No, I don't know. Um, but there's other times where you buy something and you're like, I don't know why I didn't do this 20 years ago, right? That is this. For some of you, you're like, oh, it's a blue bag. Any guess? It's a hammock. Let's just say the word, hammock. Oh, there's something so relaxing about a hammock, isn't it? I I don't know if you've ever, anyone ever spent time in a hammock? It's an amazing feeling. I, I don't know if there's like many other better feelings in the world, maybe a really good meal or something, but like this, when you're in the hammock, it's like you're wrapped in love, embraced. You're just like, it's so peaceful. Uh, well, I mean, unless you're hanging off like a construction building, that's not fun. But, uh, but you're maybe out in, in the wilderness type thing. I remember taking this with me on the road trip this summer and just hanging up in the park and just kind of... <sighs> In fact, I want you to think of a word that comes to mind when you think of hammock or people in a hammock or you're in a hammock. What's the word that kind of comes to mind? Maybe rest is one of those words. Um, maybe you don't like being confined and so freak out is a word that comes to you. I don't, I don't know. But rest is a word that comes to mind for me. This idea of just being in a place, in a state of rest. And here's what I know about life. Um, rest it's not always easy to get, is it? In fact, a sense of rest is something that we may struggle with in our culture. Uh, Andy Crouch wrote a book a year ago called The Tech Wise Family. He made some statements in there. He says this, true rest seems to be elusive for most Americans. Only one in seven actually set aside a day a week for rest. And often what they do on that day of rest is they do what? Work. <laughs> they, they end up working. In his study, he said 16% of Americans commit to daily time alone, just to rest, to, to, to just be. 21% surveyed said they have a little bit of time alone with just them and God. A little bit less percentage said that they actually do activities that help recharge themselves. 12% of American adults say that they intentionally set aside a time of the day where they don't use electronic devices. So 88% of us are hyper-connected. And in an overly always-connected culture, real rest can almost seem elusive. True rest can really almost be something we don't quite grasp. And if we're not careful, that can sneak even into our spiritual journey. And our journey and our connection with understanding Jesus and walking life with him and understanding what maybe a resting faith really entails. And that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. So we've been in this series, if you're new, uh, called Disciple, kind of looking through the Gospel of Matthew and, and trying to get our minds around it. How did Jesus disciple the disciples? Like, what does it mean to have as a disciple that, that Jesus would say, I want to have my attitudes, my heart uh, kind of formed within those who are following after me, 
that they would do the things I would do, they would say the things I would say, they would go the places I would go, they would interact the way I would interact. So how did Jesus do that with those early disciples and followers of him? We said discipleship is different than internship. Internship is, is often just an assignment of task. You go do these things because I didn't want to do them. Uh, or, but discipleship is this idea of kind of this apprentice. You, you apprentice yourself after someone. There was a famous saying back in the first century that said, may the dust of your rabbi always be upon you. Meaning, may your proximity to the one that you follow be so close that the dust from their shoes kicking up would actually rest upon you, that you would begin to be like the one you follow you become more and more like them. And so we looked the very first week at this idea of starting in Matthew chapter eight on the beginning of Matthew eight and the end of Matthew eight in week two. So in week one, we see Jesus responding after the Sermon on the Mount coming down and he meets this leper, right? And leprosy was this idea of a disease that was the untouchables. You wouldn't touch, you wouldn't go interact because it was to be avoided at all costs. And yet Jesus says, my heart is willing to meet and to interact with those who might be, quote unquote, the untouchables of society. And, and what we saw Jesus modeling, what he wanted his disciples to be marked by, is this growing heart of willingness to go where Jesus would go and to do what Jesus would do, that they would have this growing willingness within them. The end of chapter eight is Jesus calming the storm, remember? And it's this great storm, and the disciples, who some of them are professional fishermen, are kind of overwhelmed by the storm that's happening. They wake Jesus up. Jesus says two words, be still, scolds the storm. It's completely calm. And now they're completely undone by who's in the boat with them. Who is this guy that speaks to the winds and the waves, and they actually listen? And we begin to see that this increasing awe, this heart of worship, is to grow within and to be a marker of a disciple, one who's following after Jesus, that we don't shrink Jesus down. He's actually a whole lot bigger than you and I could ever get our arms around or mind around. And as we grow as a disciple, we should marvel more. And we should be undone more in worship. That following after Jesus is a continual encounter with a God who is way bigger than you think he is. And then last week, we looked at the beginning part of Matthew chapter 11, where John the Baptist, remember? And he's kind of got this crisis of faith, where he's got some doubts that are seeping in, and some questions, and some struggles, and he sends a message to Jesus, and he asks that really profound question, are you the Messiah? Are, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the one that the whole Old Testament talks about? Because my situation, maybe he would insert a little commentary of, my situation's not what I think it should be. And I just want to make sure I've hitched my wagon to the right person. And Jesus responds, and he says everything that the Old Testament talked about, you go and report back. It's all happening. John, your situation is not going to change, but everything is happening as it should be. That faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive, we said. Don't let your doubts drive you away from Jesus. Let your doubts and your struggles and your questions actually drive you to Jesus that he's the best place to take those. Disciples are not people who never doubt. They may have doubt, but they choose to lean on Jesus with their doubt. And they develop in the process this persevering faith that perseveres through the ups and downs of life and through the things that mark us as we travel in the journey of following Jesus. So tonight, um, if you have your Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 11, the end of Matthew chapter 11. 
And we want to look at this idea of a resting faith and, and probably some of the most beautiful words that we ever hear Jesus say. They're incredibly significant. They're incredibly beautiful. They're majestic in nature and what they say. And there's this invitation that comes emotionally even to Jesus as he says these words. I just want to read it to you. If it helps you to close your eyes just to hear it. We kind of heard it in one translation. I want you to hear it in another as Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's an incredible passage of Scripture that's captured in this section the ending of Matthew chapter 11. In fact, there's four key words. If you have your actual Bible, I want you to highlight or circle these because they kind of give us a picture of God's uh, soteriological plan, kind of his plan of salvation that we see on display throughout history and, and all throughout the pages of the Bible are kind of captured in four key words here. Verse 27, Jesus says, look, um, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I want you to circle reveal him because that's what Jesus came to do. You want to know what God's really like? Well, you look at his Son. He's revealing who the Father really is and what he's really like because he is God. And so Jesus has a pretty profound statement here. Some people bristle against it, but he says some pretty incredible things in this moment. He reveals, and then he says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you, that's the third one, and learn from me, that's the fourth. Revealing, come to me, personalizing. Take my yoke and learn from me. What's fascinating when you begin to, to look through this is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, where Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and the son to whom he chooses to reveal. Only Jesus truly knows God. So only he can truly make him known. Only Christ can make God the Father fully and finally known, understood and seen. God is partially known in other ways. We know this to be true, Romans chapter one. says creation speaks about God's revelation. It's this general revelation about the bigness and the grandness and the greatness of who God really is. And we get a partial understanding of God. We get a partial understanding with the way God has wired us in our humanity and our conscience that we understand this idea, this call toward righteousness. We can feel it and we can sense it. We're partially known. We can know him by the unfolding developments of all of history. But the reality is, we don't get to know about how his love for people and his plan to redeem us from our sin and our brokenness except through his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the specific revelation. 
He's the revelation of who God really is and what he's really like so that we can know him. That's why every true examination of the truth and the hope of Christianity must find its beginning in the historic person of Jesus. Not a philosophical thought, but a person of Jesus. It's why Christianity always is properly framed best as a relationship more than a religion. It's what sets Christianity apart because it all comes back to a relationship with the person of Jesus. Everything finds its hope in there. What's fascinating is this makes perfect sense at the end of chapter 11 when you actually look at the whole chapter 11. I didn't even see this until this week. Here's the reality. What does Jesus do in the very first part of chapter 11? What's it all about? John the Baptist, right? What's the one question about? The one question is, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been looking for? That's what John is asking. He says so. And Jesus responds, John, not only am I going to say yes, I'm going to show you yes. Here's what's happening. All these prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, the lame are walking, the blind see, the dead are raised. John, yes. Now, no in some ways because your situation is not going to change, John. Your circumstance is not going to get rectified in a different way. In fact, you're going to lose your life. That's what's going to unfold. But John, the answer is yes. I am he. And then what we know is Jesus had performed all these miracles. And then right toward the end, before he gives this incredible, beautiful message, this invitation to come to him, he gives out some woes. And you might be like, whoa. Yeah, he does. So you can look at it right before here, starting in back in verse like 22 or so. Jesus gives some woes over some cities. And what he says to them is, woe to you that the miracles that were performed there were pointing to someone, not something. And you missed it. All these cities actually have synagogues in them. And so in these synagogues is the teaching, the religious teaching of the day of the Jewish people. Here's the Torah. Here's what it's to be about. Here's how you are to live your life. This religious pursuit of God and what Jesus is really saying is everything I did, all these miracles point to someone, to me, and you've missed him. Woe to you because you've settled for religion and you've missed the relationship that I've come to bring. That's why A.W. Tozer writes this, Jesus Christ came to deliver us from our moral and spiritual disorders. It must be said that he also came to deliver us from our own remedies. Do you know what religion really is? Our attempt at a remedy. It's our attempt and a remedy to our situation. God is perfect and holy and he is set apart and I am not. And there's this separation that exists. And so what I will do is I will become religious. And I will pursue God. And it will then show and prove to him that because of my devotion, because of my effort, I'm worthy. I have some bad news for you. 
the gap is a whole lot bigger than you think it is. And there isn't any amount of effort or devotion that you can do in order to get right with the perfect and holy God and the creator of all things. That's why the scriptures shout to us. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about a religious working our way to God. Anyone ever been on a treadmill before? There's this religious treadmill that we can get caught up in where we can run really, really hard and we can put incredible effort and we can sweat buckets. And after so many hundreds and thousands of miles, guess what? You still end up right back where you started. You haven't had any movement. You've had a lot of activity. But it hasn't moved you anywhere. That's the call of religion, is to say it's about your effort, it's about what you do, but that's why Paul writes in Colossians, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. The authority of darkness that was over you, that spoke into your life, he's rescued you out of that. And he's brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves. Listen, to the identity there. He didn't bring you to a philosophy. He brought you to the person of Jesus. He brought you to the son whom he loves. In whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus is saying here, don't miss the invitation to rest upon me and upon what I do. Don't miss the Son. He's the revealer of the Father. That's why he's calling, that's why he says, come to me. He doesn't say come to a plan. He doesn't say come to a philosophy. Jesus says come to me. Don't miss the Son, he's the key. If you miss him, you've missed everything. It kind of reminds me of a story of, uh, happened several, several years ago. Pretty wealthy guy. And uh, things are going well for him. Married, he's got a great life. He's got a beautiful son that he just adores and loves. And it, it, it's, he's the apple of his eye. And yet he got sick, and they tried everything. And yet his little life ends way too short, and it's gone. And the vacancy and the ache within that dad, for some of you, you know that ache, and you know that sense of loss. And for him, it just, it ate him up. No matter what he tried to get around, it just consumed him. And so to, to kind of numb the pain of that, and because of his wealth, he just went to travel. And he traveled all over the world. And as he went, he just began collecting artwork and, and pieces of art and just in building this incredible collection. And over several decades, he actually amassed a pretty amazing collection of world-renowned art. It's much later in his life, and... His wife becomes sick, and she passes, and suddenly he's left alone again in the ache of that pain, and within a year, he passes. Now, there's such a large, world-renowned collection 
that the, the buzz and the commotion is going out all around the world. And people begin flying in for the estate sale because they know the masterpieces that are going to be sold there are amazing. And they can't wait to bid on them. And so people from all over the world have assembled on this estate sale day and the, the auctioneer slams the gavel down and says, this will now commence. And they bring out the very first piece. It's just simply entitled The Sun. And, and they put it up and, and to be honest, it's a very mediocre piece of work. It's by an unknown artist. No one's ever heard of it. The murmuring's kind of going through the crowd of, okay, where's the real stuff? Where's... Where, where's the real pieces that we've come to bid on? And so the auctioneer says, we're going to start the bidding at $20, which seems so incredibly low with everything that hangs in the balance and everything that is to come, and not a single hand goes up. Until moments later, there's an elderly woman toward the front who gets up and walks down waving a $20 bill. She says, I, I guess I'll take it. And she gets there, and the auctioneer says, going once, waits. Going twice, sold to this lady. Well, the buzz begins to assemble again as the people are waiting the very next piece and all the masterpieces that will be brought out next and who's going to bid on what and where it's going to go and what country it'll end up in. And a few moments goes by, and the auctioneer slams the gavel again and says, this concludes the auction. And people are flabbergasted. What, what do you mean this concludes the auction? We've flown from all over the world to be here. Where's the Monets? Where's the Rembrandts? Where's the Picassos? Where's the real pieces of art? And the auctioneer calmly says, well, in the stipulation of the will, the very first piece was painted by this man himself. And it was his son, in the painting. And his stipulations simply read, whoever gets the sun gets it all. Whoever gets the sun gets everything. Friends, that is the gospel. If you get the sun, you get it all. That's why Jesus is saying these words. I'm the revealer of the Father. Come to me. You've missed it. You have so much religiosity and so much religious effort, but I've come that you may rest. It's this incredible passage and invitation of Jesus to find him and to find rest. That's why Christianity is not a religion. It's not about a religious pursuit of trying to gain access to God in a right standing with him through your uh, incredible devotion and effort. Christianity has been and always will be about life with God, gaining a relationship with God through faith in the Son. When you get the Son, you get it all. Don't miss him in the midst of that. As we trust in Jesus, we are given a posture of rest. It's our faith in Jesus, not in my own faithfulness, or not in my own effort, or not in my own devotion, or not in my own pursuit and energy and striving for that. It's my faith in Jesus 
that says you can be at rest. It's like Jesus is the spiritual hammock that you can rest in. That's our hope that we have as a follower of Jesus. That's everything. And when you get that, it changes everything. It invites us. Jesus goes on, he says, look, I'm the revealer. Come to me. What's the next phrase? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's incredible, the balance of the scriptures. We don't just come and rest in Jesus and therefore then always become this Christian couch potato and we don't do anything. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. What he's calling us to is a posture of rest in him. And then take my yoke upon you. If we, don't, we know yoke is like egg yoke, but we don't really know yokes from a farming term. And that's what Jesus is speaking about. A yoke would be this wood beam that would rest on top of two oxen. And all the straps would be tied to that and they'd be strapped around the oxen. And that's how you would move as a unit to plow the field. Two, pulling. And what Jesus is saying is, look, you have a yoke that's been over you. This authority that's been over your life, I want to remove that. And I want you to take on my yoke. And you're going to saddle up right next to me in life. And we are going to tackle and journey through life together. And you can be at rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I am gentle and humble in heart. That's why you need not fear as I invite you to take my yoke upon you. See, the Jewish people spoke of the yoke of Torah or the yoke of the law because the Old Testament was a yoke as a symbol of submission to authority. What Jesus really meant here when he said, take my yoke upon you, explaining this idea of take my yoke upon you and learn from me, is to take upon the yoke of Christ, is to enter into his school. It's to become his disciple, to regard him not only as your savior, the one you can rest in, but the one that you can learn from as the teacher and Lord of your life. That includes submitting our mind and our will and our actions to under his sovereign control and over his sovereign authority. That Jesus describes himself as humble and gentle. That's why we need not fear. He's saying, I want you to partner up with me and together we will pursue life in the best possible way to live it. Learn from me. We see all throughout the Gospels this idea of resting in Jesus. That was something big the Apostle Paul drove home over and over in his letters. We have a resting faith because it's not in our effort and our devotion. Now, there's a caveat with this saying also in Matthew 11 that speaks to these rhythms of rest. These rhythms of rest that Jesus invites us into. That says, I want you to have these rhythms of rest. Can I just give you two examples we see all throughout the scriptures? This rhythm of rest that Jesus lived out. Here's one. Luke chapter 5 verse 16 says this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That's not a one and done thing. This is a habit, a pattern that we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus often withdrew. This rhythm of rest to escape the noise and the voices of culture around us. Mark 6 says this, 
Then because of so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat. He said to them, to the 12, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some, what? Rest. Hammock time. In fact, when you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus often is inviting his closest followers There's some time to rest. He modeled to his early followers the importance of pulling away into refueling, into recharging, investing incredible hours into them before they went together and invested into the crowds. In fact, one of the researchers says this, the Gospels put three-fourths of their emphasis on the training of the 12 disciples, calculating that from the time Jesus invited them to, I'm gonna make you fishers of men to the time of the crucifixion, 73% of his time was spent with the 12, the rest with the crowds. Jesus was investing in them, a ratio of three to one, of pulling them away, investing in them, training them, and then together they would go and minister. Because when you're filled up, you have something to give. And when you're empty, you don't. You know that because you drive, right? Anyone ever run out of gas before? It's one of those weird feelings, right? Doesn't matter how much you step on the gas pedal. When it's empty, it's done. He pulled them away and invested in them so they would then turn and have something to offer. The spiritual significance and importance for us learning this rhythm of rest and of refueling, of recharging. That's why the truth of the Sabbath is still important. It's why disciplines like silence and solitude actually help us grow as disciples who live in a cluttered, noisy culture. Would it be fair to say that our culture is noisy and cluttered, filled with distractions? If so, then maybe the disciplines of silence and solitude. In fact, Henry Nouwen writes this, one of my favorite authors. He says, without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live the spiritual life. Because we have so much commotion and buzz and noises and voices speaking into us instead of the one voice we need to hear most. Silence and solitude supply fuel for our very soul. They help us become more like Jesus because we're able to hear him and we're able to to settle in and be with him. We can rest in him and then we can discover some rhythms of rest with him as we travel through life and as we journey after following him. We must find moments to tune down the noise of life in order to turn up the giver of life and his voice into ours. The experience of rest with him as we find our rest in him and our rest with him. And so how I wanna end tonight is real simple. I wanna give you a moment to ask yourself one question. Where is Jesus calling you to rest? Where is he calling you to rest in him? Maybe you've gotten caught up in this religious activity and you're trying to earn your right standing with God. Can I just invite you? Come to Jesus. 
take on his yoke and learn from him because you're just gonna make yourself exhausted and you're gonna miss out on the very thing you long for most because he already says, I've done it. It's here, it's yours, it's a free gift. And that's not just for the point of salvation, that's for the point of life, that we don't have to live trying to earn something. Where is he calling you to rest? Where is maybe silence and solitude not even on the radar in your life? For some of you, you may work seven days a week. In America, we wear that as a badge of honor. But I'm telling you, you are missing out. If you've sold that as a badge of honor, okay, great, good for you. But I'm gonna tell you right now, you're gonna wake up 10 years from now or 20 years from now and you will have missed life with Jesus. Because there are these rhythms of rest that he modeled and that he showed and that he called his early followers to say, this is the best possible way to live. And it will help you become fully you and who I've created you to be and to be fully with me. And I don't want you to miss it. And so in a second, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you a 64 second video. Here's the caveat. There is no sound. And I know what that just created inside of you, anxiety. Because for some of you, to be quiet for 64 seconds is like unbelievable. You, you, you can't ask me to do that. I don't even do that in the shower. I hum all the time. Like I, I just, noise has to be going, Jack. And I'm gonna push back and say, no, no it doesn't. And so in this video, you may see just a graphic or two that catches your eye. That, that is your story. You'd say, yeah, I, I own that. Maybe, ooh, maybe I own that too much. Maybe that's too much of me. And as you watch this, I just want you to hear Jesus' words for a third time of one of the most beautiful passages of what he says. And then I'm gonna ask you this question again. So are you ready? Where's Jesus calling you to rest? To rest in him, not in your effort, your devotion, but to rest in him alone. Because if you get the son, you get it all. 
And where is he calling you into rhythms of rest? And what would that begin to look like in your situation, in your life, in your season? How would you begin to carve some times of solitude and silence just to be with, to be refueled and refilled? And so, Father, that is real simply what we ask tonight. God, forgive us for the ways that we take our relationship with you and, and if we're not careful, we, we turn it into this religious pursuit of you. And we start trying to do so many things to earn your affection and your attention and your approval when all along you're just speaking and saying, I love you. I love you. And you've given us all we need in your son. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus plus nothing equals our life and our hope with you. Father, for any who are here who have never come to that place where they've just felt in deep within their gut that they've had to earn it, they've just had to to go and do it and to try to make you pleased, I pray that your grace would overwhelm them. That the words of Jesus, no one knows the Father except the Son, those he chooses to reveal, and maybe right now he's revealing himself to you. And he says to you, come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Enter into my school. Give me that authority over your life because I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. You don't have to be afraid. In fact, together, I will lead you to the best possible way to live. So God, for some that you're maybe nudging their heart tonight, I pray they'd say yes to you, Jesus. They'd talk to the friend that brought them. They'd come see us. They, we want to celebrate with them. God, for the rest of us, we live in an incredibly connected culture that's chaotic and full of so much commotion. And yet you call us so often to this rhythms of rest. Would you show us what that might be? As we partake of communion here in a minute, We recognize again that we rest fully and solely on the foundation of what you accomplished on the cross. Jesus, it is your life. It is your death. It is your resurrection that allows us to have life with you. And so as we take that juice, as we take that bread, as we ingest that, Would you help that to reinvigorate our heart of rest in you and whisper to us in these next few songs the rhythms of rest that you want us to have with you? What does that look like this week? How can we take a step toward that? Would you move, Holy Spirit, in our hearts?